Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye, and Mayu cannot be here with us today. If you guys are following him on IG, you can probably see that he's living his life in Greece and Dubai, leaving me here to do the preamble myself. Um, just joking. Hopefully he enjoys his vacation there. But we got to go business as usual, continue to roll out episodes. Quick updates on my end. We'll keep this preamble relatively short. Things are a little bit slow. So I've been focusing a lot on stabilization of the current portfolio. In my opinion, that there are still ways to move forward with your real estate investing journey without actively acquiring real estate. That could be through networking, continuing to build your lead sources for the future. That could be through wholesaling, by cleaning your bookkeeping, by making your processes more smoother. I've been doing some of the back end stuff that I've been neglecting over the past couple of months and getting everything caught up. So that when opportunities do arise, which I think they'll arise within the next couple of months, I'd be able to take action on them. Other than that, have been doing some private lending as well. So got another interest rate payment yesterday. Feels pretty good. Put a lot of my liquidity in cashable GIC. So it's earning me about high four or 5% return, which is not a whole ton, to be honest with you, especially when you consider after tax close to two and a half percent. But still something while I am able to keep that liquidity there and take advantage again of opportunities as they arise. Right now, we haven't seen any pickup in the real estate market. Things are still really slow. Months of inventory, at least in the GTA, is continuing to pick up. In a lot of cases, you could argue that it is a buyer's market. So obviously, with that being said, sentiment being down, uh, the famous quote by Warren Buffett, when those are fearful, be greedy. When those are greedy, be fearful. It looks like we're hitting that point where there's going to be more opportunities coming up. I've actually saw a single family home. I think it was a townhouse selling the Trinity Bellwoods area of Toronto for less than a million dollars, which is absolutely ridiculous. That buyer got an absolute steal. Houses there during February 2022 would go anywhere from 1.5 million for probably a piece of crap property upwards of 2 million plus because of the desirable location. So We're seeing opportunities slowly creep up there. I want to make sure that I'm well capitalized to take advantage of it. At the moment, I'm still looking at deals, but I really haven't found the numbers making too much sense. The bond yields are continuing to climb up. I think it touched 4.5% or very close to it, or maybe slightly above that. I'm I'm trying to remember, but it was the last thing two or three days ago. Um, And obviously that's going to have a significant impact on mortgage rates. A lot of the mortgage rates that we're seeing today are above 6%. I don't think it's possible to get sub 6% at the moment. As far as I'm concerned, everything is mid 6% and above. And some of the shorter terms like one year are are hovering around 7%. So there's been a lot of pressure on fixed mortgages to go up. If Mayu was here, I'm sure he could talk more about it. But obviously that doesn't bode well for the real estate markets, in my opinion, because our prices are not meant to operate on on 6-7% interest. Keep in mind, most of the price gain happened during a low interest rate environment. And with a lot of renewals coming up, a lot of people are going to get that sticker shock of their payment going up 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. 
in some cases, even more than that. So again, just waiting on the sideline until opportunities come up. But I know other investors who are still finding incredible opportunities on this market. Uh, really, in my opinion, it depends on how liquid and how well capitalized you are and also sort of your thoughts on the market moving forward, because that's going to dictate the decision that you're going to make. But nonetheless, I think a lot of investors are in agreement that opportunities to come. And uh, obviously, a lot of wealth is made during recession. So we want to make sure that we're able to prepare for that and take advantage of that. Uh, anyways, speaking of opportunities, we're going to jump straight into this podcast. We have Josh Stevenson, who was able to scale his portfolio to 100 plus units in Northern Ontario with his business partner and no joint venture partners at all during this scale. Uh, instead, he was using a lot of creative financing, buying properties in Aurelia. And as numbers got more tight, he moved further off in Northern Ontario. He is still finding opportunities in today's market. He's still buying real estate with the 1% rule or even in some cases above the 1% rule in today's market. We talk about how he's able to find deals, what markets he's looking at, what his criteria is to buy properties in today's market and how he's still able to scale. There's a lot of amazing golden nuggets in this episode, so you definitely don't want to miss this out, especially because it's relevant to the times today. If you guys enjoy this podcast, make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps support the podcast. And without further ado, let's jump right on it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest from Invest North, Mr. Josh Stevenson. Josh, how's everything going? I'm great. Just enjoying the last of the summer. It's a beautiful day here, uh, just outside of Aurelia, Ontario. And I uh, just came in from my cottage in Muskoka up in uh, Lake of Bay. So I had a nice weekend there. And just loving this lifestyle that has real estate has afforded me. <laughs> Right, right before we started the recording, we were talking about how Josh looked like he lives in a cottage and then he told us he came back from a cottage. So that's how you really are living the lifestyle. But for anyone that doesn't know you, you know, why don't you give us a quick background on how you entered into this space, you know, how you've evolved over the years, like what's changed, right? And really just who you are as an individual. I'll just give you a, a really quick synopsis. Um, so I was a teacher for most of my life. After university, I became an English language teacher and ESL teacher. And I taught uh, English as a second language in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the Czech Republic, in Australia as well. And after I did that for maybe 10 years, I came back to Toronto and I opened my very own ESL school, English language school on Queen Street. And we taught kids from all over the world, young adults from the Eastern Bloc of Europe, South America, Asia. And we did that for a few years, my then girlfriend, now wife and I, and we had our school closed down because of SARS and 9-11. SARS was kind of like the, uh, the precursor to the epidemic of COVID-19 that we have now. But the one-two punch of SARS and the WHO putting a travel advisory against Toronto and the 9-11 attack, which took students out of Toronto as well, that kind of ended our ESL school. So then I became a conventional school teacher. And I taught grade eight for uh, 15 years. And all the while I was actually uh, building a real estate portfolio while I was a school teacher. So three years ago, I was able to retire from my teaching job because we'd acquired uh, enough doors to, you know, for me to step away from teaching. But uh, yeah, for many, many years, for a decade and a half, I was a school teacher and I was building my real estate portfolio starting in Barrie moving to Aurelia, 
and then up to North Bay and up to um, Cobalt entities, the Rutherford Glen and Surgeon Falls and Muskoka. So we have a uh, hundred doors. I just picked up another two today, I think. So maybe 102 doors and many, many Northern regions. So um, that's a little bit about my backstory. Thank you for that breakdown, Josh. A uh, lot to sort of dig in further. So obviously you've been investing for almost two decades now, right? So you've probably seen a lot of different things happen in real estate that many of the newer investors haven't gotten to experience. But before we we get into that, would you be able to walk us through how the first early beginning of your journey was? Like, why did you settle at Northern Ontario? Because I would imagine in 2005, Hamilton and these other regions were, were probably a lot more affordable. Northern Ontario, probably even more so affordable. But how did you go about sort of selecting a market? How did you go about creating that team and investing long distance? Keeping in mind, there were no not no resources, very little resources to what we have today. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point, you raised. Yeah, so when I started off uh, in a library one day, and I, I spent a lot of time in libraries, and I read a lot, and I was walking down the aisle, and I, I saw this book, and it's kind of, you know, it was on the shelf, and it, it was half pulled out, like somebody almost took it, but then they didn't. So I was like, oh, what's that? And it, it was called... Uh, Building Wealth One House at a Time by Charles Schwab, which is not a really well-known book, but it has the main concept. It wasn't Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I subsequently wrote, but I pulled that book down. Yeah, yeah. Now that wasn't, I've read that. I've read the series, of course. But however, the first book that got me started was Building Wealth One House at a Time. And I pulled it out and I leafed through at night and I thought, I just, some numbers jumped out at me, like in some concepts like house hacking and using equity to leverage and all, all these concepts. So I signed it out and this is just when I was starting my teaching career and uh, I was just having my first child with my wife. And um, the first house we ever bought was a house, a duplex in Barrie. And the Barrie market hadn't really exploded at that point. It was still kind of infancy in terms of uh, price escalation. And it needed some work, but luckily my father, who was also a school teacher, but he was like a house builder before I became a school teacher. And he showed me in this house how to drywall, how to do simple electrical, how to do plumbing, how to put in a new kitchen. And this is before, you know, you could pull out your phone, watch a YouTube video and do it all yourself, right? So yeah, I basically learned how to renovate houses from my father, only in that house hacking, living in one part of the duplex and renting it the other for two years, but I think that bloody house, you know, I bought it at 270 and I sold it at 450 and that was like two and a half years. So I took all that money to Aurelia, Ontario, which is just 30 minutes up the road. And I bought a bunch of houses and I used the same trick. I bought a big old house and I divided it up into a duplex myself. And then my wife got kind of sick of living with tenants. So I would just fix up old dilapidated buildings after the school day was over, or I would do it on the weekends or during the summer. And I built the, the first part of my portfolio, just buying kind of fixer offers and doing it all myself. And my dad's advice, and he would come to the job site and help me a bit. And then I, you know, I got my friends to help me. So I would read books, but I really needed that knowledge from my father. And then, you know, Matt McKeever came along and, and a bunch of these uh, pioneers on YouTube. And then it got a little bit easier, but then I started finding that you could actually use creative financing. You didn't always need to use your own money. 
And I discovered that you could buy houses with uh, no money down. Uh, because I was a school teacher and I had a little portfolio behind me at that point, I think I had about seven buildings and they were duplexes, triplexes. I think there's a fourplex in there, but enough to, uh, to have some credibility with the bank and the traditional bank, um, they kind of shy away. Well, they used to shy away from investors after about five buildings. I think you can go to 10 with Goshen and you can maybe cut deals at this point. But back then they, they told you to kind of piss off after five. So I started dealing with credit unions and some of these credit unions, uh, they'll tell you if you find a seller that will lend you 20%, the 20% down payment, a credit union will lend you the 80%. So I bought eight different buildings just doing that, just borrowing the 20% from the seller who was a motivated seller. This is before COVID. This is like, you know, seven, eight years ago. And if there's a building sitting around on the market for long enough, that seller is motivated, particularly if it's a multi-unit and they are sick of it. They just kind of want to wash their hands of those problems and those tenants. And if you're young enough and ambitious enough and crazy enough, and you can uh, jump in, borrow the 20%. And I'd always pay the same. I'd always say, I'll pay you 5% interest, which is not much in these, this day and age, but 5% was more than what the mortgage rate was back then. So they said, oh, well, you know what? I'm happy to lend the school teacher the 20% because uh, if he defaults, he's got these other buildings that we can maybe go after and school teachers are generally trustworthy dudes. So that helps the banks and the credit unions like school teachers. And if you do have a bit of a portfolio, you can do no money down deals. And I would actually say we're coming up on a time where that is possible again, because things are sitting around, sellers want to get rid of this stuff. And interest rates are a bit high, so things aren't jumping off the shelves. So I've actually been pitching this a bit and it's been working again. So I would recommend that your listeners look at those creative financing angles and don't just think, well, I need a 20% down or I need to do this with a conventional bank. You don't. And it's actually better if you stay away from those conventional avenues at the beginning when you don't have as much equity to play with. And so Josh, I'm, I'm curious because you, well, you could obviously dissect some of the earlier ones that you did as well, but the fix and flips and the, the conversions, I think were great to get your feet set, your feet in the water, whatever the phrase is now. Uh, yeah. But when you guys jumped into commercial, some of these, uh, I'm assuming like smaller-ish apartment buildings, right? Uh, yeah. At that time, were you able to like that, that service these properties at a decent rate, especially if you were buying them with like problematic tenants and I'm assuming under market rents, maybe some non-payments, maybe some vacancies, right? How did you kind of navigate those waters or did you just find a credit union that was willing to understand the future potential as well? Yeah, well, the credit union was kind of instrumental in kind of believing in us. And uh, one part I did forget to mention that I did join up with another guy, Brent Peterson, and he had a little portfolio at the time and I had a little portfolio at the time. And we did a lot of this together. So he and his wife were employed. Jessica, my wife and I had a bunch of income coming in too. So that added to our credibility. But a lot of these places, yeah, there were rents to turn over, but okay, let me break down how cheap some of these places were. There's a little town in Cobalt, Ontario. I bought a fourplex there for $125,000. There was a duplex in Cobalt I also bought for $70,000. And I put maybe 20 into it. So we're up to 90 now. There have been single family homes in North Bay that I've picked up for 150,000 and 125,000, which I now rent out for 2,200 a month. So 
I really went out of my way to find the good deals in the beginning. And you make money on the buy. I know you guys know that, but your listeners should too. If you can find that diamond in the rough that's not going to, you know, cost $100,000 to get it up to speed, if you know how to do the work yourself, you're certainly at an advantage. Or if you can find uh, credible contractors, reliable contractors that'll they'll show up and do the work for a decent price. And a lot of these Northern communities, people will work for 25 bucks an hour. People back in the day, they work for 20 bucks an hour. You can find guys for 30 bucks an hour if you know the right people. I have bought million dollar properties for sure. I have a few of those, but a lot of these, you know, I wasn't hitting home runs every time I was hitting, you know, singles and doubles with these cheap single families. And, uh, even in Aurelia back in the day, I was buying triplexes for $200,000 and I bought a fourplex for $200,000. So if you can just find those deals and I am still finding those deals. Like today I bought, uh, I, well, I, I've yet to sign the paperwork, but I have an agreement. I bought a duplex for $200,000 in Sault Ste. Marie. And it's the guy who's getting rid of his whole portfolio. He's a guy who's got a bunch of stuff he's offloading got many doors. He just wants to, uh, you know, retire at this point. He's in his late sixties and it's a brand new, uh, renovated duplex. And we settled on 200,000. I bought another one three months ago from the same guy and it was 195,000 and it was a renovated duplex. And that's in Sault Ste. Marie. So you can find these deals today, not five years ago. Listen, let me ask you this just quickly, but in front of Boston here, cause of the cold wall Ontario, yeah, I've got a property cook on Lake which, you know, very small price per unit. But yeah. it keeps me up at night sometimes. And I'm like, you know, like what if the mine shuts down and like now I just got this property and like what's going to happen to the local population? Like, are you not too worried about that stuff? Or do you kind of view it as like a shorter term lens? Like maybe I just own it for a couple of years and then reposition out of it. Or I'm just curious about like how you evaluate risk when you're investing in, because I'm sure a couple of years ago, it really probably seemed very risky like 10 years ago. I don't know exactly when you bought, right? But yeah. And I'm sure people that invest in Timberland today probably get shit from other people, right? So I'm just kind of curious how you looked at it. Well, okay, a couple of things there. Just like Warren Buffett, my favorite holding period is forever. I think I've sold two buildings in my life and I think we have 34. So buy and hold is what I do. However, to your point, I do market research. Up in Cobalt, Ontario, they're actually opening a Cobalt Recycling Center there. And cobalt was named after the cobalt mineral that they extracted there. And cobalt is used in electric vehicles. It's used in cell phones and this and that. So there is still some cobalt up there. The, the mine has closed. However, they're dumping a lot of money into this cobalt recycling factory. And they're going to take cobalt from all different places in the world, from electric vehicles and from old cell phones and this and that. And they're going to recycle it up there. So that community is being reinvigorated. North Bay was the fastest growing city in Ontario. You guys probably know a bit about this. You know, the U-Haul trucking company, they sent more trucks from Toronto to North Bay during COVID and subsequent years after COVID than anywhere else. And those are people moving from Toronto to North Bay. So that has a hugely growing population. So that's another good one. And uh, St. Marie. Actually, it was just listed as, um, I think the second best place to buy in Canada in Money Sense magazine. So I, I certainly keep my eye on this. Uh, I think you're safe in Kirkland Lake. Those mines are still, are still doing well. I've actually totally thought about buying in Kirkland Lake. 
but I try and add X amount of doors in one market and then find the other, the new and upcoming market. So I don't want to have pentacles in 30 different uh, communities. I'd rather focus on maybe five good communities and keep it simple and set up the property management and the systems there. But market research is huge. And you, you know what? <laughs> Every day when you, when you get up and cross the street, it's a gamble. And the only reason I've gotten to this point in my life where I've, you know, I'm semi-retired. I, I took the entire summer off, just took my kids to Europe for a few weeks and my wife. And the only way I got to live this lifestyle is through a few risky moves. So I know not, it's not for everybody. I applaud you for buying an income property so far away from you. And I think people like you are the ones that get ahead. And people like you are the ones that are going to be laughing down the road because all these communities are going to fill up. Like, look at, look at Canada. We're getting half a million immigrants a year. The GTA is saturated. It's bursting at the seams. So these smaller communities, just by a sheer numbers game, are going to fill up, I think. So I think you'd be smart to continue investing in these smaller communities. And I think you're going to really be surprised at the amazing returns you're going to get. Listen, yeah, no, really, really well said. And sort of uh, following up on on building teams in, in different areas, when you're investing in these like smaller areas, usually there's only a few contractors, a few handymen. And I found that, or maybe this is like Sudbury in specific, but even North Bay too, I was getting quotes for roof replacement in those areas. And the prices were outrageous compared to what you can get in the GTA how do you go about finding fairly priced labor or is it just a matter of you just have to get a better deal to justify the higher prices of labored material up north? Yeah, two things there. If I'm moving into a completely new community, it's usually my realtor. So one of the first things you want to do when you decide to invest in a new community, for example, I just started in Sault Ste. Marie. This will be my fourth building in Sault Ste. Marie if I get this one later today. But I just start asking around other investors like you, often I say, who is the best realtor? And by that, I mean, who's a realtor that either A, has his own or her own investment property or has been dealing with investors for years and years and years? Because those real estate agents and not all real estate agents are created equal, as you know, some are brilliant and some are useless. I deal with the brilliant one. So I get tipped off by an investor like you who has rental properties in the community. And I get the name of their realtor. That realtor usually has a Rolodex. So that's not a term we use anymore, but you know what I mean. As a contact list of um, plumbers, electricians, reliable drywallers, reliable painters. And sometimes, and this is what I look for, is a jack of all trades. Somebody who can walk into a building and not only do your drywall and your painting, but rewire some stuff and maybe put a roof on. Or it's got a buddy that does that. So in each community that I've described to you, I have a guy or a few guys that are reliable, that, that work for cheap rates. For example, like in Aurelia, my brother-in-law, he's a, a lawyer. He was a criminal defense lawyer, but now he's, uh, he works for the, the, the Crown. And he has a, an income property in Aurelia across from, the, across from the hospital. And his chimney was falling off and he needed soffits and fascia and some bricks were corroding. So he called in a guy just from the internet and he was quoted $18,000 to fix all these things. And he called me and he said, Hey Josh, that seems like an outrageous quote. Can you do any better? And I said, yeah, for sure. Let me call Nigel. I called up Nigel who's been working for me for years and he did it all for, I think $2,300. So 
So from like 18 grand to 2300, this is a little bit of bias, you know, like people in these small towns call people from the city, city at some time. And there's, a, there's like a bias against city people and they'll charge them through the teeth. But if you insert yourself and make some contact, and a lot of the time I even make contact through my tenant. If you are friendly with your tenants and you establish a rapport, like you don't want to be inviting them to your kids' birthdays or anything. But I mean, if you establish a decent relationship with your tenants, those guys are usually blue collar guys that know other guys. And if they like you, they will get their buddy in to do the job for a third of the price as a conventional contractor. So I've really utilized those tenants as well to get the good prices that I needed along the way. So Josh, today, I think you said you have a, a portfolio of about a hundred units. I think all across yeah. like, you know, or in a couple of cities in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, are, are you predominantly self-managing then? Because when you talk about like relationship with your tenants, like I don't know some of my tenants like names or definitely don't have the contact info and even like fault finding trades. A lot of times, like we're relying on property managers, which, you know, sometimes has worked out well and sometimes has been a little bit of pain in the ass, right? So yeah. I'm just curious your approach, like are you self-managing and how are you doing it across multiple different cities, you know, just kind of what worked and what they did for you. Yeah. So I am new to property management. I do have property managers, everything I bought about four buildings recently in Elliott Lake. And I did get a property manager there right from the get go. Everything through St. Marie's property managed. I got 40 units in North Bay and we had a property manager. We had to let him go because he had 25 units of his own, which was a bit too much for him. But now I got a guy that'll just go in and change a lock for 50 bucks and he'll actually do showings for me for 50 bucks. So I don't even have to pay him a monthly salary. So that's pretty cool. But the way I used to do it is you kind of befriend, like, let's say you have, like, I got a 14 plex in Sundridge. Okay. It's like a, a little retirement community and everybody's over 55 and I can't, you know, Sundridge is, is an hour and a half from me. But I moved the guy in, Bruce, and he's got some skills. And I said, hey, listen, man, I will never raise your rent. And I'll give you a case of beer here and there if you cut the lawn. If you do house calls and troubleshoot some, uh, you know, if there's a thrown breaker or if you want to switch out a tap. And just over time, the amount of things he'll do for me will grow and grow. And then a fourplex over in Rutherglen, which is uh, 20 minutes east of North Bay, I got another guy there who will go into another unit and fix a leaky tap or put a new wax ring on a toilet. And I try and befriend like one person from each multiplex and you kind of keep praise on them. You buy them gift certificates, a case of beer if they're into that. You give them the odd phone call just like as a friendly, hey, how's it going? And you don't always need to pay a property manager. If you are sociable, personable, and you can connect with people, you can get people to do an enormous amount of things for you for a very reasonable price. If you treat them right and you treat them like a human being, and it's not even so much about the financial reward. It's more like, I will never raise your rent like I do everybody else every year. And, uh, you know, I'll always bring you a copy of my wife's new book and I will always give you a gift certificate at Christmas. So that's basically how I've been able to fill the holes and, um, before we started going to property management across the board, and we still manage probably 60 of our own units, that's the model I use. You try and befriend somebody in the unit. It seems like it's a very relationship-based approach. And I figure in 
in areas like Hamilton, Cambridge, Windsor, bigger cities, it doesn't work as well. It's more so smaller city vibes, right? Like population 50,000 and below where relationships truly matter. I found that whenever I go to these smaller areas and I have conversations with tenants, a lot of them assume the property manager is the owner, which I have to explain to them what the difference between all of that is. Whereas when I go to Windsor, (laughs) everyone knows the difference between everything, right? But they're so used to relationship, right? And like having that, like, I guess sort of how you explained it makes a lot of sense in the pockets that you're investing in. And it's a great way for investors to cash flows tight nowadays. So it's a great way for people to continue to save on their expense line. Now, I was on your website taking a look. So you have about 100 units and it's over 34, 35 properties. Yeah. Is that right? So yeah. a fair amount would be probably single families, duplexes and triplexes as well. As of course. someone who has invested for nearly two decades now, one of the things that have constantly run across my head with these single families and duplexes is one, if we ever run across non-payment of rent, you don't spread it around multiple tenants. And two is, is that at least when you're buying now, obviously cash flows a little bit tighter if you're getting property management. And I just have a property right now. The roof needs to be replaced. The cheapest quote I got was 12 G's. Goodbye to all of the cash flow plus a little bit more that I've made throughout the year. Having such a large portfolio of single families, duplexes, triplexes, and being in the game for two decades, how has the capital calls been? And how do you manage that? And is the cash flow still able to sustain all of that? It is, and it does. Um, okay. Through our credit union, we've established a $300,000 line of credit that we use. Like we had a $45,000 flat roof bill last year. I couldn't find... Uh, <laughs> you know, Joe from down the road to throw shingles over top of shingles. So I had to bite the bullet on that one. Your portfolio gets to a certain point. You do need like a lot of resources to keep it going. And it's not the same. Like last year was capital intensive because we had some big projects we had to do. However, my two criteria points, and I don't care if I'm buying a 14 plaque or if I'm buying a single family, I always look for the 1% rule. Okay. So the 1% rule for your listeners is basically if you are buying a building for, let's say half a million dollars, your rent should be 1% of the total cost of the building. So that's a good way to look at it. Like I won't look at anything other than that. And I also, in these Northern communities, and it might be a bit of a surprise to your listeners, I look for a 20% cash on cash return on my rent only. I'm not talking about appreciation. I'm not talking about mortgage pay down. So for example, today, if I pick up this duplex, it'll be about maybe $43,000 all in with my closing costs and my land transfer tax and blah, blah, blah. So I'm looking to cash flow. Um, my cash flow provide me 20% of that $43,000 each year. So that's an amazing thing. You look at the stock market. Like last, I, I play, I used to play the stock market. Like it's casino, but, uh, I usually lose money in the stock market. And, uh, most people that are even private lending, you know, if you get 10%, that's great. If you get 12%, you're a hero. I'm getting 20% cash on cash return just on rent. And it is possible to do so if you know the right places to look and if you know the right strategies to put in place. So those are the two things, the 1% rule, the 20% cash on cash return, or as close as I'm not going to stop at a 18.5% cash on cash return, but keep it around there, the 1% or just below it, or sometimes just above it. 
So those are the two criterion points. And if you stick to those, uh, fellows, you're always going to have enough cash flow for those furnaces, for those roofs and for those contractors to come in and, and do their thing. Because, you know, you're making so much off your cash flow. You're, you're putting money in the bank into a reserve. We also have the $300,000 line of credit in case uh, an asteroid hits the earth. So we're going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're looking for 20% cash on cash before refinancing, because a lot of people yeah. get 20 to 30% after the refi and pull their capital out, but you're getting it on purchase. Like if you were to buy it, close on it and rent it out, you're getting 20. And if you refi, it's probably much more than than 20%. So that seems to address that, finding cash flow heavy markets. Now, I'm sorry, Maya, you look like you had something or? No, no, you, you confused me there. And I was thinking it would be the opposite. A lot of people probably get that on the buy, but once you refinance, you erode the margin. But I guess if you're burying and you're pulling out all of your cash, oh, it's, yeah. you're going to have a very small net impact. Yeah, you know, I, I think what Josh is pointing to, like, it's honestly, it's something that we were very diligent on early on. Hey, what's our cash on cash here, right? And then over the years, like, uh, partially because of the market, just doing a thing, like, it's been hard to to cash flow that high, right? Um, and I think Josh is a testament to kind of the strategy of just going out to tertiary markets. Like, the people that I know cash flowing that high are now either in Sault Ste. Marie or in Timmins, right? So, yeah, kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Question here. I mean, you're you're continuing to scale your portfolio. What are you doing now that's different than before, given of how high interest rates are? Because we're finding that even in like markets like Sudbury, which traditionally should be cash flow heavy, even duplexes there are not cash flowing. So it looks like one of the things is obviously spreading out to different markets. But what are you doing in today's market? Are you still throwing out offers aggressively? Are you tapering back? Yeah, walk us through that. Usually the, the way it goes is you, you know, you happen upon a great market and you start buying buildings. And then the word gets out and everybody piles in and uh, drives the prices up. So I started in Barry. Barry got too expensive, went to Aurelia. Aurelia got too expensive, went to Muskoka and so on. And now I'm up in Elliott Lake. I'm in Sault Ste. Marie. I'm giving KL a hard look, <laughs> you know, even Timmins. By this rate, I'll be in the, the Arctic Circle soon. But <laughs> um, what I've done is changed my geographical location because if you go, you know, and I will at one point, I'm sure run out of markets that are offering a 20% cash on cash return like that. That's kind of like the, the promised land, but you can still get it now. Those deals are running out because, you know, eventually people will hear about Sue and Bray and hear about the great deals there. And it'll become more competitive because the investors will move in and you'll have to find another place to park your money. But I have stayed ahead of the curve. So I have you know, when a market gets too expensive and North Bay is an excellent example, like before COVID, like I said, I, I bought a single family home for 115,000. I bought another one for 125,000. I bought another one for 160. These ones I'm, uh, you know, getting a refi out of and I'm getting, they're being appraised at $300,000 from $115,000 to $300,000. So that was the way things used to be. Now in North Bay, you cannot buy a single family home. If you do buy one for, you know, in less than 300,000, you got to do a hell of a lot of work and it's not, you know, in great shape or in a desirable location. Um, you can still get them because often I, I know you can. Because <laughs> you and I had a chat about one too, but I, I just don't know if the contracting team, my contractor moved out west, so, you know, that kind of hamstrung me. But I guess the answer to your question is, just move your geographical location and go to those markets that have not been saturated with investors 
and the prices haven't been driven through the roof. So that's how I've weathered the uh, high interest rate storm and the COVID storm. <laughs> I think it's interesting and it's impressive that you've gone at it alone. I think that's a major challenge for a lot of people as well. So are, do you find you're going out to these cities, especially like as you're out in Sault Ste. Marie and Cobalt and Elliott Lake and all these places, like, are you still going out a lot or have you kind of brought this down to a point where you don't really site visit and you just kind of rely on the realtors? I'm just curious what the process is like pre-acquisition and even like post-acquisition as you're turning around buildings, how involved do you get? Yeah, I'm going at it alone now. My partner, Rem Peterson, he's like 46, I think. Uh, he retired. Like he said, I'm done. I got enough doors. Like I've got enough cash flow. He doesn't have any kids. And, uh, so he, he just said, peace out. Why do I have to keep going? You know, I'll be doing, I'll be doing this till I'm 90 years old just because I love it. Right. Like I love the chasing the deal and, and this and that. But to answer your question, now that I am doing it alone, because Brian has taken a step back and I've opened uh, another corporation and filled it up with properties on my own. I basically, if I see a good deal, if it's on MLS, I'll get my realtor to do the walkthrough and he and I will FaceTime through the walkthrough. And if I like it, I will buy it sight unseen. Well, not, I, I will put in, you know, purchase agreement with a two week window for me to walk through it once I get up there. So today I expect after you and I hang up on this call, my realtor will have a, you know, this duplex sewed up for 200,000 because we already have kind of a verbal agreement. You know, the purchase agreement will be in place, but I will give myself, I don't do home inspections because I am a home inspector in, in my own mind, <laughs> maybe not as qualified, but I've walked through enough buildings that I do my own home, home inspections. So basically, uh, based on me walking through the building, I'll say, I'll buy the building, but I got to walk through it once. And if I, I've never turned it down after walking through it. So I'll find the, the five hours to drive to St. Marie in the next two weeks. And if it's a horrific mess, uh, of course I decline it, but I've already seen all of the pictures. I've gotten an expert opinion from my realtor who specializes in income properties, and he's given it the green light. I've never turned down a deal after my experienced realtors have told me it is a good deal, but I, I do both see them. I bought one site on scene. I've never been in it, but out of, out of the 34, I've, you know, I've been inside 33 before I paid the money. That was a really important point you made there, right? Because during the peak of the market, people were buying left, right and center without ever seeing anything that they've ever bought. And I'll admit I was guilty of that as well. Unfortunately, market appreciated, but I quickly learned that it is important. Yeah, you need to have a power team for sure. And if you have someone in your power team who can go inspect it for you, you're your own home inspector. So there's that, right? But yeah, it's it's important if it's not your sort of skill set that you hire someone or have someone who can go in and look at the place. It's difficult for someone to just buy something based off of photos and no one has ever been in the property before. You could get into a load of trouble like that. Oh, 100%. And photos can be manipulated so so well in the day and age. You, you got to be in the building, you, get, you know, is there water in the basement? It's the roof, it's the foundation, it's the electrical, it's the plumbing. Everything else is kind of cosmetic, but you, you got to make sure that those really expensive uh, parts of the house are sound and solid. Like it's got to have the good bones and uh, the foundation is huge. But everything else, you know, you got to make sure there's no knob and tube in there. But, you know, everything else can be corrected with lipstick, cosmetic reno. But I think, yeah, you've got to step foot in those buildings. And Austin, I've heard a lot of people kind of have buyer's remorse after not 
you know, being in that building and buying sight unseen. Like I, I would be wary of doing that. That's why I've only done it once. And I did have some really reliable people through that one before I even pulled the trigger on that one. So Josh, I'm curious because I, I know we're approaching an hour here, but the strategy that, that, you, that you've executed, it's definitely unique because you're doing it at such a distance and you've always done it at, at such a distance. You know, back in the day, really, it would be a distance, right? But yeah. any lessons for our audience? Because people are going to listen to this and they're going to start looking into Elliot Lake and they're going to look into uh, something that's even further than that, I think, right? <laughs> Any kind of lessons that you just want to share, mistakes that you might have made? It could be like financing. Because I'd imagine like some of these buildings, like financing in some of these small areas gets a little bit more challenging, right? Or maybe it's just around the team and the execution and the turnaround, like any kind of mistakes that you've made that you'd like to share? Um, One mistake I made early on, and that was up in Cobalt. It was a fourplex I bought. I still have it, unfortunately. It's a really big building with really big units, like three bedroom units. And I did not do my due diligence in terms of the utility. So the guy selling it, he was from Kirkland Lake. I got to go look that guy up. <laughs> but he said, oh yeah, the, the electricity is this and the, the gas is this and the water is this. And I said, okay, well, good. And then after I picked it up, because I thought the guy was trustworthy and the real estate agent was like, oh yeah, he's a good guy. The utilities were way off. Like, you know, the gas was thousands more. The, the hydro was thousands more. And what you need to do, and you guys know this, is you need to get physical bills. Like show me last year's gas bills, all of them. Show me last year's electricity bills, the water bills, and do not skip that step. Because that building I thought was going to cash flow at least, you know, seven, eight hundred bucks. I think it cash flows like, you know, 150. And I think in the winter it's negative because of the utilities are running big time. So I would strongly recommend doing your due diligence and, and looking at all of the electricity bills, all the gas bills, et cetera. Don't just go on the guy's word. That was the one time I got burned. And uh, yeah, I regret that. I'll add one more story onto that just because I think uh, it ties into this really well. We bought an eight clips out in, um, in Moncton, New Brunswick, and the guy gave us utility bills for one of the meters. We closed on it. We called the utility company to set up our account. Turns out there was a second meter. I was pissed, but like, at this point, you'd already closed it. And luckily, like, it wasn't too detrimental. But it just shows that, like, yeah, there's, there's always going to be kind of lessons, lessons learned. And, and now we know to kind of call the utility companies and verify how many meters there are. So it is what it is. But Josh, you know, I really appreciate it. I think this is a great episode. It's a different type of audience than our, than our listeners are definitely normally used to. And you, you come with decades of experience investing at a distance, which I think is, is hard to compete with. At this point in the episode, we usually ask our guests two questions. So the first is, where do you see your business going in the next two to three years? I know you said you can do this until you're 90, but short-term <laughs> kind of like vision. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, like, I don't feel like I need to hit the home runs anymore. I've done some really big buildings with no money down, and that, that's where I build my equity. So right now, I'm happy picking up perhaps uh, five buildings a year. So like, you know, let's call them five duplexes. So if you had 10 doors a year for, you know, the next five years, that'll put me at about 150 doors. That's a pretty good place to be. And for me now, it's like, it's more about not screwing up because a lot of people, you know, they get a little too big for their britches. Like I know a lot of people, my peers are investing in Costa Rica. They're investing in Mexico. They're investing in Florida and uh, Texas. And 
that's great. Like, I think that's exciting. And I think there's money to be made there. But um, there's also something to be said for staying in your lane. And if you have a formula that is tried and true and that works, and you're getting that 20% cash on cash return, why the hell would you screw with that formula, right? So I think uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, if I could add five buildings a year, and I can do that without breaking my back. I can do that buying turnkey stuff and not, not having enormous amounts of headache and putting property managers on it right away because my wife's sick of taking the calls. <laughs> so I think five buildings a year for the next five years. And, uh, you know, that puts me in a hugely great spot in five years. So there, there's my answer. Interesting. And for newer investors, you might've already answered this as part of that question, but for newer investors, I just getting started today, I maybe one or two properties. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for them, Josh? Get out there and find those creative financing opportunities. Like, the way I put my portfolio on steroids was doing those eight no money down deals. Like um, those were huge. And if you can find a lender that'll lend you the 80% and you can find a seller that will lend you the other 20%, uh, they don't even have to cash flow that much. But trust me, you're paying down two different mortgages. You're paying down a VTB, you're paying down the conventional mortgage. You're making money. So you, you might not be making hand over fit uh, cash flow, but you have appreciating buildings. You have buildings that are being paid down. And if you have a little bit of cash flow through these creative financing deals, uh, real estate's all about time in the market, right? So, you know, it took me 15 years to retire as a school teacher. And those were tough years. But I mean, if you spend enough time accumulating those assets and not giving up, a lot of people give up, you know, like they got a guy not paying them rent for 10 months. That's tough. You got a very expensive renovation bill. A lot of people give up, but I mean, if you stick with it and you continue to build piece by piece and it's not a get rich overnight thing, just stick with the program, stick with your vision, write out your goal. You know, um, that really helps too. And, uh, I I'm sure that these guys will be successful, man. It's all about working hard and not giving up and, always learning. Listen to these podcasts. You can get a mentor. I've never had a mentor, but uh, I, I think they're valuable if you want to take that shortcut. But just keep talking to people who are also in the game. That That's hugely motivating. So I, I would recommend you do that. Awesome. Really appreciate that advice. As my, you already said, I think this is a pretty unique episode. I enjoyed it a lot. It's always great hearing different investors doing different strategies, especially ones that we, we don't hear much about. And there's success in every strategy, exactly what you were saying. If you're good at something, just stick to your lane and you'll continue to be good at it. And you're a prime example of that. For those who want to connect with you, maybe they want to invest with you. They want to follow along with your journey. How could they best do so? Yeah, I would recommend getting in touch with me through my, my Instagram account. It's investnorth.ca. I also have a website, investnorth.ca. And uh, I'm on Facebook. I haven't you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you guys. I actually just turned 50, uh, the other day and, uh, I don't do TikTok and I don't do a whole variety of social media and I've never had to, but I love interacting with people through Instagram. That's probably my favorite way to interact with people. Cause, uh, you know, if we connect, I can see what's going on with your life and you can see what's going on with my life. I think it's a very exciting time to be alive because of that. Yeah, I know social media, guys, if you're not on it, then uh, suggest you ju definitely jump on it. And uh, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, share it with a friend, comment, do whatever you can to support this podcast. 
because it helps bring amazing guests like Josh on the podcast. Josh, I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we chat. Sure that you're going to be on the podcast in the future doing many more cool things for everyone else. Invest smarter and live better. Take care all.